Hello, and welcome to the first episode, Once Upon a Time, in the series Population Health, The Unfinished Journey with David Kendig. We've all wished we could ask questions of someone who's gone before, hear their stories, understand their thinking, and enjoy the history. Well, today we have just the chance with David Kendig, a thought leader in population health. Hi, Dave, how you doing? Hey, Sandy, good. Uh, always like to talk to you. Well, I'm really excited to be doing this podcast series with you. I know you were kind of reluctant to do this 50-year uh, history of your career, but I've learned so much from you, Dave, uh, through the years. So I'm excited that we're putting this together into this podcast. Um, I think I first met you in Minnesota, you were doing some work for Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation, and then- And you were commissioner of health for the state yep, of Minnesota. I was commissioner of health, and right. I would nab you whenever you were coming to town to visit family and friends, I'd nab you to pick your brain about whatever was on my mind or whatever we were confronting at the was, Department of Health. Yep, so that Dave, was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Maybe tell everyone where you are right now. Uh, I'm at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health. Uh, I'm currently a emeritus professor of population health sciences. I also served as vice chancellor for health sciences here for a number of years in the 1980s. And I'm currently a senior fellow at Health Partners Institute in Minnesota and affiliated with the University of Minnesota. And you can find more on our bios in uh, the show notes or just look us up on Google. <laughs> but uh, for now, Dave, thanks in advance for sharing your stories and your heart for population health. But I'm gonna jump right in. So we titled this Once Upon a Time and it does take us back to the 1960s in Chicago's South Side. And you went to medical school there and graduate school. And I can't believe this, but you went in tumor virology. There's probably a story behind the story on that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and <clears throat> you obtained your MD, PhD, and you focused in academic pediatric. That makes a lot of sense. But still, that's a lot of medical focus. Were there any population health roots there at that time? Well, thanks for, for asking, and it, it's fun to remember back some of those exciting times. Um, it, it, pro the answer is maybe a few. Um, the south side of Chicago in the 1960s was a very intense environment with civil rights and the Vietnam War and the issues of being located in an inner city part of Chicago. Um, I got involved in SAMA, the Student American Medical Association, um, sort of cut my tooth in that regarding more primary care and community health education. Uh, got elected national SAMA president um, when I was a, a junior. And in that um, also learned a lot about the policy process. We helped, to, we did a lot to get the National Health Service Corps passed. Um, which at the time was draft fulfilling service in rural and urban communities. But as you note, um, that was still pretty medical care related. So what brought you from 
academic pediatrics into a residency in the South Bronx, really at a forerunner of what we would call an FQHC today. How did that happen? Yeah, well, that's actually the uh, event in my life that changed certain my, my professional career. Uh, I, was, uh, I finished medical school and my PhD there, stayed for a first year pediatrics residency. Couple, on a couple of months after rounds of my PGY1, um, I was casually chatting with the chair of peds. Actually, it was in the men's room after John, after, <laughs> ra after rounds. And he said, um, I said, I'd like to just have a one year, uh, one month experience in a neighborhood health center across the street, something we were not allowed into as, as a medical medical students. They said, don't worry, I'm still going to NIH and I'm still going to do tumor virology. Um, he said, you better come talk to me in my office uh, later on. So I made an appointment a couple of weeks. I went in. He said, the faculty has decided that one month is not a legitimate academic experience for a PGY2. PGY yeah. Um, now I will have to admit that I had been wearing a little thin on my virology research um, um, and had some activism in my bones, but that sort of did it. And that, that triggered to move, move to the South Bronx. Uh, and I created a social medicine residency. It was the original residency resident. And that still exists today as the residency program in social medicine. It's a leading program training primary care physicians for uh, service in underserved areas, and particularly with underrepresented minorities. Uh, we had, in addition to innovative clinical work, um, like nurse practitioners and family health workers, um, we never discussed epidemiology per se, or numerators or denominators. But just being there, you realize that the health of a community was as influenced by those who didn't come into the center as those that did. We had first family health workers and what we would call today health and all policies for that center, um, job training, legal advocacy, school health. I don't think I used the population health term until reading the Evan Stoddart paper in the early 1990s. We will hear more about that in future episodes. But I've always thought that all my later pop health scholarship and advocacy and policy work was a return to the Bronx in a more, in a clearer way. Mm. Boy, it's, it's hard to believe that that faculty member said that to you, but that was back in those times and the, the thinking back then. But anyway, that uh, loss was our gain. Uh, I kind of see it in that way. Well, and mine too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So from 1971 to 1985, you were in full-time medical management in the federal government and two academic health centers. So how did the finances of healthcare come into the picture kind of at this early stage of your career? Yeah, well, that was critical. I was lucky to get into some relatively senior positions relatively early on. 
but those whole 14 years in management, um, as well as other lessons, like I was a MedPAC, ProPAC commissioner for Part A in that period, they made me <clears throat> intensely aware of the role of finances and financial incentives and how dominant they were in healthcare. It was also influenced being in an OEO neighborhood health center when later on where the grants went away, um, they funded less social determinants. Um, sort of what they pay for is what you get. And uh, as opposed to formula approaches, like at that time, Medicare GME funding for residents to hospitals that just keep giving every day uh, probably more dollars than they need for that purpose. But um, so the financial incentives were really dominant in my, as well as those involved in just running institutions. So how did that intersection with the finances, managed care, capitation, how did those things influence your thinking about producing health? Not, not necessarily health care, but health in the early 1990s. Yeah, absolutely. It was a time of uh, managed care. I just saw in the paper that Paul Elwood passed away recently. And you know he was the father in Minnesota of a lot of that thinking. Um, the idea of bundling of payments rather simple individual fee-for-service payments for each service, bundling them like combining hospital and outpatient services into a DRG bundle, or either some early ex um, experiment with social HMOs that also wrapped in home care and, and long-term care. So that was uh, all the mu milieu and actually the hope that healthcare reform would be based in a capitation way. So in 1992, uh, Donna Shalala was chance our chancellor here at UW-Madison. And in the alumni magazine, every quarter, there was a faculty column uh, called Unconventional Wisdom that she asked somebody to write. And, and I wrote one um, called The Healthcare System Should Produce Health. And a quote from that, it's just a little one page column in a alumni magazine, but a one, the quote was, imagine if a significant part of a healthcare organization's income was tied to the improvement of their patient's health and functional status. Such incentives would unleash the same capitalistic creativity towards health that currently exists for health services. So, and that uh, later on, we'll hear about my population sabbatical book, but that is the root of the subtitle of the book, Purchasing Population Health, Paying for Results. That's a pretty profound uh, one sentence in 1992, Dr. Kendig. Um, well, so we're still talking about medical services, although you're starting to head the ship in the right direction. Where were the medical, the social determinants? Were they on the, the radar screen yet? Yeah, I, I think unfortunately I have to say no. Um, they hadn't yet um, arrived, at, at least in any uh, common academic or policy circles. Um, I had read 
1990 Evan Stoddard paper, which we'll also come to in a future um, work, producing health, consuming healthcare. I'd read that paper, but obviously it hadn't taken root since no mention in this first Wisconsin article of the social determinants. The closest is a little phrase of other social services that contribute to the quality of life. Well, that uh, book, Purchasing Population Health, Paying for Results, there's going to be more about that in our second episode. So listeners, please stay tuned for the story behind the book. Uh, will be in our second episode. But we're going to summarize, in each one of these podcasts, we're going to summarize some takeaways. And I hear these takeaways early on in your career. And you can add to them, Dave, as we go. First one I hear is that what happens outside the clinic is as or more important than what happens inside. And that was not a widely circulating concept in healthcare in the 60s and 70s. And then the second takeaway I hear is that financial incentives are critical, but we know they can be overdone, AKA fee for service. But the idea of capitation really changes the orientation and the thinking. And then the third thing that you said that you've continued to say is that grants are not enough for major change. For something so major, you need ongoing formulas that as you said, keep on giving. Things like crop subsidies or graduate medical education, GME funding. And then the last takeaway I think that really is your classic, and I'll let you say it, Dave. Um, yeah, um, why not financial incentives for health outcomes instead of simply healthcare services? Yes. So four takeaways from this first uh, podcast, Once Upon a Time. So thank you, Dave, for taking us back to where it all started, and it sets the stage for uh, the eight more episodes, and we already told you what number two is going to be, the story behind the book. But Dave, you want to just tell us where the whole podcast series is headed uh, since it's Population Health, The Unfinished Journey with you. So where are the next episodes going to take us? Sure. Here's the remaining uh, series coming up, and I hope they're intriguing to have you listen in again. Number three is What is Population Health? Number four, The Lonely Years. Number five, Picking Up Steam, 2006 to 2014. Number six, It's All About the Money. And then uh, we have two on health equity. Number seven, Population Health Equity, Finding Common Ground. And then number eight, Population Health Equity, It's Crucial and Complicated. And then the final is called Looking Forward, The Unfinished Journey. Well, sounds really interesting, Dave. Your, your journey through your 50 years uh, that's not finished yet in population health. So thank you so much for sharing your heart and your stories for population health. So listeners, please join us. You can find, for next time, you can find references in the show notes for this episode. And uh, at www.iaphs.org, that's the Interdisciplinary Association for Population Health. 
So again, thanks for joining us and we look forward to your joining us for future podcasts. Bye now.